right, KISS Army. Welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. We hope that you enjoy. 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 Welcome to episode 317 of the Kiss FAQ Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill, and today I'm joined by author, um, you've got a whole bunch of titles, Robert Duncan, you've written, you were editor for Cream, you've written for Rolling Stone, Circus Life, um, you've written books, uh, you have a new novel coming sure, out called sure. Loudmouth. Did I miss anything important in that uh, brief synopsis of your life? Uh no, I think that that's as that's as much as I can handle, or as much <laughs> as I can remember. Let's say, but yeah. thank you for having me, Julian. This is it's fun. Well, thanks for joining us because obviously you have a new novel coming out. I think believe it's your first novel, Loudmouth, which is coming out via Three uh, Three Rooms Press on October the sixth. But we'll talk a little yeah. bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about your writing for magazines. Obviously, Cream is big in kind of the media at the moment because of the new documentary finally uh, coming out. Um, so, can yeah. we start with that and your thoughts on the documentary that go back to obviously its foundations and your time as editor? Absolutely. And uh, uh, no, the, the doc is great. So uh, a, a few years, like four, it must be now over four years ago, because I know that he, uh, Scott Crawford, the director, was and, and Jan Uhelski, the uh, who was co-producer, worked on that thing for more than four years. Um, and in the end, they got, I mean, at some point, they got a couple of years ago, they got me involved. So I get to have a nice little story consultant credit at the beginning and end, which was, which was, was great. And then they got me to do a bunch of voiceovers because they interviewed me. And so that was fun. And then he said, you know, I don't have anybody talking about Lester dying, Lester Banks. And, um, he said, could you do a, a thing about that? So I did that. And, uh, my wife who's a photographer has a bunch of photos in it. And, uh, and, uh, and in fact, the photos of Lester that I'm talking over while narrating his death circumstances are, uh, are her photos. So that's kind of cool. But, um, the doc, I was, I was just before I heard about Scott Crawford getting this deal with the Kramer family who owns, who owns all the copyrights. Um, I had, I had said to another friend, Graham, I said, God damn it. There really ought to be a documentary about, about Graham. And I, and I said, do you want me to talk? I have a young director friend who's into it. I said, do you want me to talk to him? And, and she said, yeah, oh, definitely. You know, so I called him up right there uh, from the bar. And I said, dude, are you really interested in doing a cream doc? And he said, absolutely. Um, his name is Sean Dunn. He's done a bunch of stuff. He, oh, he's done a lot of cool. He did a music video for Gary Wilson, who was actually on my record label for one record. And, uh, and he says, yeah, I'm into it. And so I said, well, he says, write me up something. So I wrote him up something. And about a month later, after we did all this, uh, and, and I, I don't regret it. I thought, oh, man, I don't need to be sucked into working on a movie for several years. But uh, I heard that Scott Crawford had made the deal. Scott Crawford is great. Salad Days, his previous movie about DC hardcore, is great. Uh, it was like, yeah. I don't want to do it, but I just need somebody who's credible and and uh, and and passionate about it to do it. So, and I feel like he really delivered. And we spent a lot of time during the course of the production. Uh, he would 
he would call. He started calling me after after they interviewed me. He and he got me to do some voiceover, and then he'd ask me stuff about the magazine, and then he would ask me more and more about the magazine, and then he would send me cuts and say and segments and cuts, and he would say, "What do you think of this? What do you think of that?" And uh, and so then uh, then he told me he says, "I'm going to make you story consultant because because you've done done so much." But it was really entirely a pleasure. I'm really uh, gratified and. I'm happy, really happy with how the movie came out, and I'm gratified that it's out there. And, you know, there was a time I thought, well, cream is just going to disappear. And, and when I was working there, I knew it was special, and I knew there were special writers and special dynamics uh, within the organization. And, and it was just, you know, it wasn't – but I thought, you know, it's, it's in Detroit, and it's, and it's, you know, trashy cream, and, you know, it's not going to – be remembered and, and i'm so i'm really happy it is and i'm yeah. happy i can be part of that memory so yeah it got rave reviews when it uh debuted at south by southwest uh i think in 2019 maybe tw- late 2018 yeah. uh but now it's available you know for people to see finally what i like about you know cream magazine obviously in the 70s i was just you know a kid i wasn't even in the country so uh, i i never got to experience cream live and in technicolor during its heyday yeah. which would have been the yeah. 70s rock scene and pop culture and everything that went with that but i, I watched an interview of listen to luch and mary described cream as the music magazine you graduated to from mad magazine now, yeah. What do you, yeah. what, what do you think of that and cream from the perspective of that kind of where it was put together, the cast of characters who were writing for it, obviously you were editor. What was the scene that made it so special to you? Well, you know, it's, it's probably one of those things you just, you can't, there's no formula for it. You couldn't recreate it. I don't think it was a bunch of personalities that came together that were just, it just worked even when it didn't, even when they were fighting with each other. But um, Mad Magazine is a good reference point. Uh, I, I've heard people compare it to it's it's a combination of Mad Magazine and Esquire in the heyday of Esquire. So, you know, kind of a it was because there was parts of it that were literary. And Lester Bangs, who was kind of is is certainly now the most well-known writer out of it and was really a, a mad genius. He he definitely had the sophistication of an of an Esquire writer. Uh, there was always stuff in his stories where you're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that reference is. I don't care. It's still great or funny. Um, so there was a big, but in terms of the mad magazine thing, it was definitely satirical. Uh, I've often described it as the satirical rock magazine. Um, and it was about being funny too. I mean, there was nothing more. If we could get a laugh out of a reader, if we thought we had done something funny, uh, that was like, yeah, that's what we were going for. Um, you know, more than, uh, more than, you know, musicological, uh, uh, thoroughness or even competence, you know, if it was funny, all right, it's, that's, that's what we want. So you can go through that cream magazine and it's like mad, you know, Mad used to have things in the gutter and it would have the fold in and, and all sorts of stuff. Well, Cream would have, there would be funny shit in the co- table of contents. You know, that thing was really worked on. You know, this, the, the, some of the subheads and headlines and subheadlines and, and the table of contents and picture captions, famous for its picture captions. 
And uh, it was an enormous thing to put together, too. I was a managing editor, and so I, I was in charge of kind of bringing everybody together and getting all the product together and all the copy and uh, chasing down the copy when it wasn't when, you know, some freelancer didn't turn it in. And uh, and it there was just a ton of stuff. You'd realize, oh, shit, we didn't we didn't do the table of contents. We didn't do a caption for this photo and on and on. Right. And you, you read back through that. And again, a lot of the same cast of characters wrote for Rolling Stone. And these are kind of high caliber, smart writers, because to me, there's a similarity with like the intelligence put into Monty Python and the work that went into all of those sketches. It wasn't just thrown together haphazard. It was very much yeah. thought out and then executed with a vocabulary that, you know, made it very clear that this wasn't just haphazard uh, off the cuff. Not that there wasn't you know, haphazard yeah. stuff. There was still, you know, thought going into the process. And if it appears off the cuff, all the better. That's what it's, I mean, you know, isn't that the great thing about Monty Python or, or any great comedian? It appears like it's not been labored over, or a great novel for that matter, that it appears like it hasn't been labored over, whereas secretly it has been labored to death, you know, so... Let's talk a little bit about uh, Loudmouth. I'm, I'm going to jump around just because okay. that, that's very much kind of how the I'll book is it. for me. So, uh, it, you know, um, you've kind of described the book as a veiled memoir, and you're probably going to be so tired of hearing that phrase thrown back at you. Um, yeah. You know, well, it, it, is that somewhat akin to saying based on a true story, but the, the names and places have been changed to protect the guilty? Well, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it, people, I had many acquisition editors when I was peddling it around would say to me, why not, why don't you just make this a memoir? And I'm like, cause it, it's not a memoir and I don't want to make it a memoir. And I don't want to piss off the people anymore that, that, uh, that are in the story more or less in more or less, uh, more or less who they are, uh, than I have to. And it was just like, and I think the, the the biggest thing is I, I wanted to write a story as I remembered it, which is is that's that's what they call a memoir. But I I wanted to I, I didn't want to have to ever think about the facts. I I wanted to remember what I remember. And somebody says to me, "Well, it didn't happen that way." Well, fine, it's a novel. And uh, but it wasn't all about evading <laughs> blame uh, or responsibility. It was about also you know, having fun with it. I, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to be looking over my shoulder all the time and, you know, oh shit, that's not the true story. But, um, the funny thing is people say to me, oh, you got to tell me if this happened. And there haven't been a lot of readers yet. There's just reviewers, advanced review readers, or they call it. And, um, and they'd say, you got to tell me if, if this guy's for real or if this thing happened. And I said, here's a good rule of thumb. This, the most outrageous stuff probably happened the the less outrageous stuff is just that's just connective tissue <laughs> right so so together the story i mean you've been working on this book for a while haven't you it's been i, I believe uh you mentioned on the the izzy interview that it had been yeah. uh, six years in the works um oh yeah what's yeah. the genesis of the project and how it's taken you six years to now bring it into print and to be you know to be happy with the end result Almost finished with the audiobook too. Fifteen more pages. I'm very excited. 
15 more pages to convert into audiobook? That'll probably take a few weeks to edit. Well, it no, I've it's it's been edited for content. It's now I have a studio. I'm in my studio now, and I thought, well, all right, I'll, I'll read it. I, I didn't want to do it any other way. Um, I don't buy any audiobooks that aren't read by the, the author. Uh, and um, and then I thought, well, what the hell? I can edit it too. You know, why why have somebody else editing it and and editing it for content and you know finding the best take? That's one thing. But then going back and editing it for technical stuff, that that's no good. That's no good. Let me just warn your audience, never do that. That's taken me, I'm 10 weeks into that process. But uh, but I got, I got 15 more pages to go, and I think I could finish it if I stay up late. Uh, but, uh, oh shit, what were, you, what were we talking about? Genesis um, of uh, Loudmouth. Yeah, oh, the genesis of this. this the, it wasn't ever intended to be anything. It was almost a, uh, I, I had, I, uh, in San Francisco, I had a terrible, I was the witness to a, a suicide in San Francisco, just out of the blue one morning, you know, I'm just minding my own business. And it was really awful and terrible. It's, it's, it's a, not a fun story, but, um, and I found after that I was having, you know, having trouble sleeping and it was just really kind of uh, having deja vu about all this stuff, PTSD type stuff. And, uh, I, uh, and I just started writing. I found myself writing and I was just writing and I would write every time, anytime I had a, a free moment and I would write at night and I would write weekends and it felt like I just had to write, had to write, had to write. And this went on for like 13 months. And at the end of 13 months, I felt much better. And I thought, well, what, what is this shit I've been writing? And it was like stories and it was impressions and it was this and that. And I thought, well, you know, is there anything I can do with this? So I, you know, put it all out on the floor and I said, well, if I, if I took this one out, this one doesn't seem to fit, but if I took this one out and I added another kind of transitional story in here and this and that, and I thought, well, I'd have a bunch of linked short stories. And in the end I thought, well, I'm just going to, keep going and, and try to shape it into a novel. And I'm, I don't care about a novel that's, that's, uh, has a real arc. Cause this is not, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl again and whatever it is. It's, it, you know, I think arcs can be corny and, uh, and maybe I can't do them, but so I thought, well, let me shape this into a novel. And it's, it's, it's taken that long. It may have been easier to write it, as a novel from the beginning than to start with this weird catch-all of, you know, psychodrama and, and try to bring it, bring it all down. Uh, but that, that took, that took five years, good five years, 13 months of writing. And then, and then probably another year of writing along the way. But, uh, as I edited, it. Yeah. Right. right. Well, it's a terrible process. Never write a book. Yeah, I'm That's the wrong, PSA. totally the wrong person to tell that to. But uh, oh, I, I know you. You have a book. I'm addressing your audience. Don't. <laughs> I, and I and I agree with it. Just don't do it. Uh, you know, there's there, there's nothing to resolve in the book. You know, because it is a series, in in some ways, of vignettes of stories yep. and scenes, and again, the connective tissue that you do mention. And you know, yep. there, I can understand people asking, you know, 
how much of that is true? How much of that is embellished? And you perhaps taking the Fifth Amendment uh, on, on all of those. Oh, no, um, but there's like one I said, thing... the outrageous stuff is true, is factual. It's all true. The outrageous stuff is factual. And the other stuff is sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, yeah, but I'm happy to talk about all that. It's interesting yeah. to me. I think a lot of people are going to connect with it, you know, when they do read it. The characters like Sandy, those dangerous yeah. people in your youth. I think we all have a Sandy in our life, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, hopefully that we survived without us ending up, you know, having yeah. it be out of us in, you know, the services. But um, one of the scenes, yeah. I, I guess as the Kiss fan or the Aerosmith fan in me, that really struck me was uh, the Joe Strummer. You know, yeah. uh, we all got to make a living. Because that's a segue into something that yeah. is kind of spoken about. And uh, there's the English version for anyone else who's not seen it out there. How and then this was Japanese. There was the Japanese one as well. You know, this, I believe, was the first um, unauthorized KISS bio to hit the market. Yeah. I know Swensum came out later that year. Uh, but you'd been working on this. It starts in 1976 at Roosevelt Stadium. How yeah. did you get the gig to write this book that now, I mean, has, just about every collector, Kiss collector, has it in their collection to this day? Yeah, it's amazing. It sold a lot of copies. I mean, it sold, you know, maybe four or 500,000 around the world, which was um, pretty astonishing. <laughs> I was a broke-ass writer living in New York at that point, and, and, uh, and I... You know, royalties are always way backed up with with books, and uh, and the first royalty statement I got was like zip, nothing. It was like, oh shit, I was hoping to pay the rent next month, and and then and then six months later, you get them every six months, as you know, and uh, it was like, I don't know, whatever it was, it was like twenty thousand dollars, which was like two hundred thousand uh, dollars at the time. Uh, to me, it certainly was, and uh, so. Um, so it really, it worked out. How do, how did I get the gig? Um, it, you know, I had, um, I had written, uh, kiss stories for, I guess I ended up writing it for cream, but I wrote for circus about kiss. I wrote, I wrote all these kiss stories. And when I, when I left cream and I went freelance, I discovered that, you know, if I could always sell a kiss story. So I was doing it for gig magazine and for circus and for, I don't, you know, phonograph record magazine. There was a, there was, I, there was not a rock magazine I didn't write for and probably wrote a kiss story in him. And I kind of got into a game where I would write, you know, a really positive story one week, the greatest band in the world. And then a really negative story in another publication the next week. And, and I would just, you know, oscillate like that. And I thought that was funny. That just struck me as funny. And, um, so I'd been doing and I'd, I'd seen them. And one of the first stories oh, I should that was that's funny. One of the first stories I lived in New York most of my life, uh, although I've been now out in the Bay Area, you know, 30 years. But before that, I went to but I did go to Detroit for a while. And for a year in, in the early 70s, I went to San Francisco. I had I had been in bands all my life. And when I went to San Francisco because I was just tired of the latest band breaking up. Uh, just when you get to the, you know, the cusp of a, a success, um, and the drummer quits or explodes as, as the case may be. And, uh, 
so I came out to San Francisco and I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'm a good writer. So maybe I'll write and write what you know. And so maybe I'll write about rock and roll. And, um, I met a guy, uh, I met a, I was looking for an apartment. I was looking for a cheap apartment and I saw a sign outside a basement apartment. It was the end of a long day, you know, for rent. And I go, so I pull a car over and I go running over there. And a guy comes in from the other direction and he says, forget about it. I got it. And I go, ah, shit. And so I said, well, you mind if I look at it anyways? You know, you're just, you're just, you're just exhausted and, and frustrated. And so I went in and I looked and he came in and he was carrying a box of whatever. And he put the box down and under the box there, he was wearing a lanyard with a press pass. And I go, well, hey, what, what's up with that? You know, uh, why, why do you have a press pass? <clears throat> And he says, well, you know, I'm a writer and I'm an editor. I said, oh, yeah, who, who you know, I'm, in, I'm looking to get into that kind of thing. Who, who do you write for and edit for? And he was like Rolling Stone, Cream. Uh, and he just went on and on. City Magazine, there was magazines out here that he worked for. And he just went on, on and on. And it turned out this was Ed Ward, who some people may know from um, he was on Terry Gross, Fresh Air for 20 years. As the rock historian, he's written a kind of definitive history of rock. He was the one of the first, if not the first, record review editor at Rolling Stone. And he was the West Coast editor of Cream. That's how he was my bridge to Cream. He introduced me to another a friend, and we ate dinner all the time together, the three of us, because Ed liked to cook. And, uh, and the other guy was John Morthland, who was also a, an amazing writer and musicologist and a guy who was you know, early on hip hop and, and early on, 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 uh, country music. And he was just, he's, was an amazing guy. He just died a couple of years ago. Uh, and these guys were a little older than me. And, um, and so John went to, was hired as the interim editor cream because Lester kept chasing a right way editors. And, um, and so John, but everybody loved John. So John went there and, and Barry Kramer, the publisher said, oh, you know, you got to help me get this shit organized. And so John went there and he called me up and he says, hey, you want to um, come to Detroit and be like copy boy. And, you know, I had only just started my career. I'd done a few um, freelance pieces, including for cream. And one of them was they said, well, you go out out with this manager and, and meet this band and it was kiss and it was bill o'coin and i went and interviewed kiss for cream one of my first assignments and it was the day paul stanley showed up late to the to the interview because and he came in he says look at this and he had just gotten that that rose tattoo that he has uh so i, I got to see it right right off the bat with the with the antiseptic grease on it and uh and so, and he got it, I think, from Lyle Tuttle, who I later got a tattoo from. So, uh, uh, and he was the guy who did all the rock stars in the 60s. Um, but so John went went to Cream, called me up, and I went to Cream. And uh, I moved to Detroit, and, uh, and I went for, and then Lester chased out one or another more editors. And within a very short time, I had become managing editor. I was way underqualified. But, but I had, I guess I had a knack for, I had a knack for kind of everybody having fun and kind of being a cheerleader and, and I'm a pretty good editor. And, uh, I was, 
an okay writer at that time, um, I think, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that was it. And then I, we got Lester and I got to be great friends and became great friends with Jan Uhelski and and uh, and even with Barry Kramer, the publisher, who was kind of Lester's kind of bait noir. They they fought a lot. Yeah, that whole Detroit scene in the mid '70s. I mean, that was where bands, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, that whole Midwest, you right, know, Kiss right. made it because of that area. Rush made it yep. because of that area. Ted Nugent came out of it because of that area. Utopia was, you know, coming through there with those bands, right. you know, opening for Aerosmith, Derringer, you know. So, I, I mean, the, the scene. Eager, Alice Cooper, uh, yeah. Endless, MT5. And, yeah, well, earlier. MT5 and Stooges had kind of died or gone on hiatus by the time uh, you know by se- I, I was there in 75 and 76 and uh, I mean they'd kind of they kind of were almost stillborn both those bands did a few records but you know they didn't get any uh, support record companies weren't sure what to do with them uh, all that but of course Iggy was around and and the guys from the MC5 were around I remember uh, going to uh Rob Tyner, the lead singer's house, you know, he was this firebrand on stage. The guy who sang kick out the jams, motherfuckers and go to his house. And we sat around the kitchen and his wife, he and his wife served us tea, you know, and it was just and, and like normal tea, not like pot tea or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was so wonderfully normal and ordinary a house. Uh, and he was a sweet guy. Um, so they were all still around and you got to meet him. And I, I remember I've told this story maybe it's in the book. Yes, it is. It's in Loudmouth where I went to interview David Bowie and, and they, they said, well, wait here in the hotel room. And it was all, it was really dark in there. You know, they had it all atmospheric, uh, you know, with the Keith Richards, like scarfs over all the lamps and all that shit. And I'm sitting there as my eyes adjust to the dark, I realized, it says in the book there's a guy on the couch, but it was actually a guy in the other bed, in the other of, the, of two beds. Uh, and it was, I'm like, wait a second. This guy's sleeping in there, and it was Iggy Pop. And his little <laughs> platinum hair. And so uh, <laughs> that's how I met Iggy Pop. He was sleeping in the other bed in Bowie's room. What is it in your youth that set you on the path into writing and, you know, specifically, I guess, for the for the most part, into musical writing? Yeah. Um, well, I think I was always uh, musical and I was always as a kid, I did badly in school, except for in writing. I was always I was always good in English uh, when I read the books, which wasn't always. And but I, I so I, I seem to have a knack for writing. There's, I have uh and I have newspaper people in my background. Uh, and my grandmother was an opera singer, so we had music kind of in the background. And uh, although my mother is tone deaf. Uh, and uh, so I think, you know, and my father worked in business. And I just thought, wow, does that? I said, I'm just going to shoot myself if that's what if I have to do that. So I always kind of had this artistic bent and I wasn't. You know, where other kids were reading the sports pages, I would read the music pages. I would even I would read the theater and the dance pages just because I liked all the the way people talked about, you know, artistic projects, creative projects. And so it was clearly in me from the beginning. Um, And, you know, when I fell in love with music, I, I, 
I just fell in love very hard and, and, and deep. And I just, it was just, you know, it would just made me crazy. It still does today. Great, great music just gets under your skin like nothing else. Uh, so, you know, and I had this older brother who's the basis of the character Sandy in the book. And he was, he was a, uh, he was like a hot rod gangster. He was way older than me. And so I'm like seven or eight and he's, he was like 16, uh, 16, 17. And, um, he's driving around in a hot rod car that he souped up and he's, I found guns under his bed. And, but I remember distinctly one day, one and only one day, our, our mother and my brother and I, my younger brother and I, our mother had to go out and she said to my older brother, she says, will you take the kids to, to get some dinners? And, and here's, you know, here's two bucks because that's how cheap it was. So she said, take them, you know, take them, go get them food. And uh, so he, we, he threw us, he was bitter about this, threw us in the back of his hot rod and driving like a maniac. And we're just flying around because you remember nobody wore seatbelts and, uh, and he's catching air. And we go down to the drive-in where he likes to hang out and where the waitresses come out on their roller skates. And, uh, and he, uh, but all the way down there, there's this, he's got the radio cranked to the max and it's, and it's this guy singing about a hound dog and just, just screaming and yelling. And I'm like, it was like the whole thing was so terrifying. And then this guy, you know, this ill man in the dashboard singing about a hound dog. And uh, of course it was Elvis. And uh, so I it was just, it was, I was traumatized the first time I was exposed to rock and roll at the age of seven or eight. And, and you know, the next day I went to school and we were doing, I went to a Catholic school and we're doing our, our hymns or we got our music class and I'm start I'm now I start to imitate Elvis in the uh, in the singing <laughs> class, and so I was horrified at one moment, and then I was somehow instructed, and that was the day. And this is this is in loudmouth uh, that the nun called home and said, "You know, I think your son has perfect pitch," and and that's the first and only good call I ever got in my school career. So that so, was that's a little bit of a musical epiphany because that was going to be a, a question, uh, you know, what was your musical epiphany? Elvis, Hound Dog, you know, it, it's different than I guess yeah. what what we hear from so many people. Um, Ed Sullivan, Beatles '64. Um, well, you you and went, then Beatles '64. Ed Sullivan was like, that's when you know it was like, okay, this is going to be my life. That's it. So and, yes, and, I had that epiphany, but because I had this crazy, uh, wild, much older brother. I got exposed. I mean, what I love is I got to be there at the beginning of rock and roll and and maybe at the end, <laughs> depending on your opinion. Absolutely. And I, one thing that it kind of enthralled me because of uh, doing some stuff, writing some stuff uh, about Ace Frehley recently, was you were talking about the Murray the K Review shows at uh, the RKO yeah. on 88th. Yeah. And he went to the same one. That you attended uh, with uh, was it Mitch Ryder on the on the top of the bill? I think it was the first New York or first U.S. appearance of Cream and well, the Who. Oh shit! I forgot about Cream. I can't. I wish I could. I guess I could find that poster online. But I was trying to remember all the amazing bands. I saw it at the RKO 58th Street. He probably saw it. It probably went to there was an RKO at 86th Street, 
two, which sometimes I would go to. But so he, I, I don't know which one he saw, probably at 86th Street. But uh, yeah, it was Mitch Ryder. And, you know, I was like, maybe I was 12 years old. And it, I, it may have been the first concert I ever went to. And I went with a, you know, a couple of my buddies and we're little kind of, you know, preteen guys and we're trying to be tough guys. And, and we're standing outside and we're looking at the pictures. We knew Mitch Ryder. We love Mitch Ryder. We knew Sam and Dave, love Sam and Dave. I don't know if Wilson Pickett he was, was on it. Yep. It's Smokey Robinson. Uh, uh, was Smokey Robinson. Well, Vanilla Fudge was on it. Cause I remember, and we, we, we like Vanilla Fudge. And, and then there was this band outside, they were pictured and the singer had like this, just kind of, he was, had beautiful blue eyes and this blonde hair. And he was so girly looking that there was no way me and my little fellow macho men were going to, we weren't going to stay for that shit. And of course I later became a huge fan of Roger Daltrey and the who and Pete Townsend and, and, uh, and saw him a million times. And, uh, and but nah, we we walked out. We were we weren't going to subject our fragile uh, machismo to uh, such an onslaught. No, yeah. Mitch Ryder, Mitch Ryder was our favorite. And uh, a few years later, I, you know, maybe it was eight years later. Maybe, you know, maybe I was twenty, twenty. No, maybe I was twenty-two. And my I had a friend Eric Genheimer who worked at Cream, and he also played guitar and he wound up playing guitar in uh, Mitch Ryder's band. And he said, uh, Hey, Mitch or Billy, as he called him, which is his real name. Uh, Billy's coming to town to coming to New York. And uh, I told him, you know, maybe it'd be fun for you guys to get together uh, that you would show him a good time. And so he called me up, Mitch Ryder, my fucking hero from childhood. And he says, Hey, you want to do something? So, I went out with Mitch Ryder. I don't even know where we went. We got so shit faced and we wound up at a, uh, we wound up at a, an after hours bar in New York, an illegal after hours bar, you know, a real mafia joint where you, where you go down the stairs, a literal dive and you knock on the door and I'm not kidding you. A guy opens a little peephole and you say, Nick sent me, or you had to know a bartender's name. And we had a, Oh, Nick sent it. Okay, they let us in, and 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 they had this they had this kind of rigged gambling in there, <laughs> and you're drunk, so you start playing it and lose all your money, and then you're trying to beg the bartender to give, let you run a tab, and that doesn't work in a in a mafia joint. So, but I remember Mitch Ryder in the I we had the greatest night, we had the most fun, we were just howling. And we got to, and he's in the middle of the place. He grabs me by the shoulders. He says, this is the greatest night of my life. And, um, and then I don't know how he got home. I know I got threatened with death by a drug dealer in, in Washington square park when I told him to fuck off. And, uh, and then about a year later he came back to town. He says, Hey, let's do it again. And I had a, I had a book contract at the time for this book, the noise. Those are a couple of the, that's another one of the books I wrote. And uh, the, it, I was way overdue on it. I said, oh, Mitch, I can't. I just can't do it. And I, I got to do this thing. I, I'm right on deadline. And and Mitch Ryder never called me again. So Ouch. now I regret that. I'm like, ah. But so I, anyways, I wound up having a great time with the guy I had gone to see at the Murray the K Review at RKO 58th Street. Wow. 
great. That's a great story as well. I want to well, ask you about uh, one of your. Well, I think it was the only review you did of Kiss albums in Rolling Stone or for Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, yeah. the Kiss solo albums in 1978. Uh, did you draw yeah. the short straw for that? How did that uh, review come about? And uh, you know, what did you think of Kiss come 1978? You obviously saw Paul Stanley and Kiss in '74 when they were black leather. They were they were tougher or in terms of image, and then you see them in 1978 um, with four independent pieces of uh, music. I mean, and I mean, you start out that article with good taste is murder to rock and roll, that kind of. uh... (laughs) Well, it's funny that that um, that I, you know, everybody knew I was writing these kiss stories, my yin and yang kiss stories, uh, negative and positive uh, all the time. So I, I believe Dave Marsh, who was the record review editor of Rolling Stone, ex-editor of Cream, he's the guy who got me into Rolling Stone, and he called me up and said, hey, you know, I believe it was him, uh, called me and said, hey, would you review these solo albums, the new Kiss solo albums? So, you know, I'm like, okay, sure. And they were, you know, it's going to be a big deal. Uh, I, in fact, I saw it in layout. I was very excited. It was going to be my biggest byline in, in, in Rolling Stone, and and Dave edited and, and approved the, the copy and everything was going along uh, swimmingly. And um, I don't even remember what I said in them in those reviews. But, you know, I always took a tongue in cheek approach to to kiss perhaps as as they do to their to their music sometimes and their image for sure. Uh, and uh, and and then uh, Marsh calls me and says, uh, Jan Wenner uh, killed it. He killed it. It's like, oh, yeah, why why'd he kill it? Well, um, he made excuses about it being, you know, it was uh, too juvenile or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it was very much cream writing. and uh, the, the, It wasn't Rolling Stone writing. And at that point, Rolling Stone is trying to be, you know, transitioned into being a grown-up. And or had already transitioned into being kind of an empty headed grown up, as a matter of fact. But uh, and so he he killed it. I was I was so mad. You know, I thought, well, why isn't everybody at Rolling Stone quitting because they killed this Kiss review? And I and I think I heard later or maybe I heard at the time that that Winter just hated Kiss. Now, I made fun of Kiss a lot, but I didn't hate them. Anyways, he hated Kiss, didn't want to be associated with them. And I I think uh I like to think rather than my uh, subpar writing, it was his taste. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got a very cream feel to it. I mean, just the byline itself, feeble foreplay, the big kiss off of 1978. Uh, it, it, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it is fantastic, you know, but for a moment in history as well. You know, I, I think the, the whole story about Kiss versus Rolling Stone is overblown. Because a lot of the the reviews of the early albums by you know the other writers were positive, so you know that's all yeah. kind of, kind of irrelevant to us. But at least I guess from our perspective of this discussion, you had one review of Kiss albums in Rolling Stone during your time there. Uh, oh, I, that one got killed, so that never appeared. Um, I've seen it only recently. I thought, well, I'll look for it online, and I found it online somewhere, or maybe I found it in my own computer. I don't know. Uh, But, yeah, so it's it maybe just floating out there, but it never ran. 
Yeah. So going back I, to that, that Joe Strummer quote, you know, of we've all got to make a living. How difficult yeah. was it for you as a writer to flip between positive, negative writing for specific, uh, specific you know, magazines each have their own style? Um, yeah. What were the challenges for that? Well, I didn't, you know, except for Rolling Stone, I didn't have to flip much. I mean, I was writing for um, I was writing for circus and i was writing for i had a column in this magazine called gig uh i had a couple of columns i can't remember i think phonograph or prm or something a phonograph record magazine i can't remember but i wrote for a lot of them so i didn't it was i was just writing the same old shit i was writing for cream so it, it i didn't feel constrained by anybody except for rolling stone um and uh i remember at circus um it, Paul Nelson, who was a, used to be at Rolling Stone, then, or no, he was at Rolling Stone. At some point, he was at Rolling Stone. He was a guy who kind of gave Dylan his record collection, or Dylan stole Paul's record collection, and that's how he learned about Lead Belly and and Woody Guthrie and all that. Um, so Paul is this enormously influential person now gone, uh, and he, you know, he got me into circus when I when I uh, came back from Detroit. And then I remember um, Gerald Rothberg, um, after Paul left the editorship of Circus, said, you want to be editor of Circus? And I thought, I thought, well, no, now I'm on my big move to I'm going to become a major American novelist. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm leaving, I'm leaving that behind. And, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't have left it behind. <laughs> yeah, you, so there were some lean yeah. years in there. You reprinted uh, I think uh, in 2014, you did a reprint of the Kiss book on Lulu. Uh, did I you did. Ever, did you ever do a reprint of Noise? No, no, but I, I, I it, it was on my to-do list. And, and it's just, the reason I did the Kiss one is a guy called me up and said he wanted to do an audio book of the Kiss book. And I said to him, well, I thought, ah, here's my opportunity because I can get my copyright back because it, it had lapsed. And uh, it, it had lapsed from the publisher and uh, and it reverts to the author at some point. And uh, I thought, oh, OK. I said, well, here you go. I'll let you do an audio book. I'll give you the rights to do an audio book if you also do a print book. And he said, well, let me think about it. And he got back to me. He says, I don't know about print books. I don't want to do a print book. I want to do an audio book. And I'm like, all right. And I thought in the meantime, I had been thinking to myself, wait a second. I can do a print book. I can do it via one of these you know, print on demand, Lulu, uh, the, the Amazon company. And, uh, so I, you know, I did, I, uh, and I thought, and I didn't, you notice I, you don't, ha you don't happen to have it there and I don't happen to have it here either. It's somewhere in my house, but, uh, the, the cover in the original, it was for, it's kind of a, a circle. I, I decided I'd do a facsimile of the original cover, but I didn't want to track down and then pay money to the uh, photographers for the, for the original book. So I thought, well, shit, I got to get, I'm not going to rip off the photographer. So I, I thought I got to get something else to put in there, the center of the cover. And at my work, um, everybody knows I'd done this kiss book. And as for my birthday one year, um, a, a woman commissioned a, <clears throat> an oil painting of me as Gene Simmons, uh, and I'm drinking my cup of tea, and I'm kind of wearing a suit, which is not something I actually wore at work. But and 
I was just saying to my wife today, I said, where is that damn painting? Because uh, I should have it up in here. Um, and uh, and that I, I was, it was in my office. And I'm looking across the room, and there it is. I said, there's my fucking cover. So if you look at the Lulu, uh, if you look at Amazon for it, uh, you'll, that's, that's the painting. So... Uh, Nice. Um, let's wrap up with, I guess, one last last question. I, I mean, it comes back to, again, cream, but connects with loudmouth. Um, you know, adjectives like irreverent, sophomoric, relentless. Um, I find that good to describe cream, but also yeah. sections of your book. And there are sections of your book that are really, I, I found it a little bit uncomfortable because, again, it was holding up a mirror to my own experiences. Yeah. Um how how much of that do you just think is a common story with like turbulence of our lives and turbulence of the past and you know where we were in 1967 the late 60s and now and you know all of these elements kind of coming together i i hope that question makes sense because it doesn't seem to make sense when it's coming out it's multi-dimensional julian uh but i would say that you know we all have that story we all have crazy shit that's happened to us in life. I really believe this. Uh, and, but some of us are interested in telling about it and interested in exploring it further and kind of like obsessing over it. So, you know, I'm still obsessing over my teenage years, uh, and even earlier, you know, so this is a coming of age novel. So it's, it, you know, it covers from about, you know, seven years old to, to, I don't know, 27, so, um, so, so I think we've all got, you know, weird stuff and terrible stuff and sad stuff and happy stuff. And just some of us want to explore it. That's what, a, and that's when you become a writer, uh, or an artist, you, you just, that's, you have to do it. So it really is a compulsive thing. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, all my life people have been telling me, uh, when I left kind of the music business and went into, I had to earn money to uh, pay for my kids. Uh, they would say, I would just tell stories, bullshit around the, you know, whatever the, the break table and, or in the bar afterwards. And they'd say, God damn, you really ought to write these stories down. So I always had that in the back of my mind that maybe I could string some of these stories together as a, as a book. And again, then I had this traumatic thing. So it's a big mishmash of, uh, of uh techniques and motives and and everything but uh um yes i it's amazing to me that i think today uh talking about juvenile i think i i write like i did when i wrote it cream and i always think well that that stuff sucked and i i'm much better writer now and every once in a while i don't like to look back at my old writing but every once in a while i'll be confronted with some of it and i'll think wow that's that's that reminds me of me today. And sometimes I won't even recognize the writing. I'll think, oh, that's not me. Oh, wait a second. That is me. Well, today so. in 2020, reality is Mad Magazine. So <laughs> it's uh, true. You know, uh, Robert Duncan, thank you for joining us on the Kasefiki podcast. Loudmouth and Novel, again, is going to be out on October the 6th. It's available on Amazon. You can also get it through uh, Robert's website, DuncanWrites.com. And it's available. It's available for pre-order now, and it's and it's going to be in bookstores everywhere. And it's on. It's if you don't like corporate book selling, it's on uh, uh, bookshop.org. 
um, you know, it's on all the the major uh, websites available for pre-order. And so, there'll be an audible version come out, coming out once you get through those final 15 pages. Oh, my God. After we hang up, that's what I'm going back to. <laughs> Robert, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. You've written articles that I've read over the years, and it's uh, really great to know that you're out there, you're still writing, you're still working, and you're still entertaining. Well, I appreciate it, Julian. It's been, it's been a lot of fun, and I now that I know you're a Bay guy, we'll have to... Uh, Keep in touch. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.